Uh, we are returning to our study of Romans chapter 2 this morning, <clears throat> and we have been in a portion of the chapter where Paul is putting some very um, pointed questions of self-examination to his hearers, and specifically he addresses the Jew, or at least one who is called a Jew in verse 17 of chapter 2. And Paul identifies really three things Three reasons why it's important that we self-examine. The first is that the hypocrite always fails to self-examine. We saw that in verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should steal, do you steal? So there is a lack of self-examination from the outwardly religious type, the so-called Jew. Um, or really anyone who professes to be a child of God but doesn't possess eternal life, doesn't possess the Holy Spirit of God and is changed from within. They don't self-examine. But Christians, children of God, we do. And that's why it's important we're doing this. Number two is it's very possible to keep the letter of the law. The Jews were very good at that. They believed that they kept the letter of the law, that they satisfied it, that they were blameless before the law. And yet, at the same time, can break the spirit of the law and in, in actuality, desecrate the law, not keep the law. So it's important we look at what the spirit is behind the letter of the law. And then the third thing, which I'd like to really focus on this morning, is this. The honor of God is at stake. Verses 23 and 24. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So let's focus our attention really on those two verses this morning, brothers and sisters, and ask the Lord to help us with these questions of self-examination for this motive, because the honor of God is at stake. Verse 23, you who make your boast in the law. Do you dishonor God through breaking the law? You'll recall that we pointed out that there is a right and a wrong kind of boasting in God. Um, this person that Paul addresses in verse 17, this, this one who is called a Jew, he boasts in himself. He rests on the law. That is to say, he rests on his ability to keep the law. He's a self-righteous, self-satisfied, self-exalting person not a God-exalting person. And as you might remember, Jew, that word comes from Judah, and that means praise. And so God's intention for his people is that they should be praised by him and that they should return praise back to him. This outwardly religious so-called Jew is one who praises with his lips abundantly, but his heart is far from the Lord. They boasted in the law, they really upheld it as the standard for everyone to live by. Verses 17 through 20. Indeed, you're called a Jew. You rest on the law. You make your boast in God. You know his will. Approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. Are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So they boasted, 
we're told in God in verse 17. They boasted in the law in verse 23. But really, they boasted not in the Lord, but they boasted in their possession of the law. What God had given them as a great privilege, they misused. And they boasted in that which actually condemned them. It fed their pride rather than humbled them. And so Paul says, you, you teach, you preach, you say all the right things. You follow the letter of the law to the T. But then he puts this question to them. Do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Notice he doesn't say, do you dishonor God if you break the law? It's not a conditional statement. It's assumed that they are breaking the law. He says, but through breaking the law, do you dishonor God? You see, they break the law and they do so constantly. Break or breaking paravasis in Greek, it means to transgress. It literally means to put the sole of the foot across the line. That's what transgression is. That's what lawlessness is. And John defines that as sin. All sin is lawlessness. It's a crossing of the line. What line? The line of God's standard, of his law, of his perfection, righteousness. And we as human beings, as sinners, cross that line all the time. So he says you're boasting in that which really condemns you, and that is dishonoring to God. Dishonor atimazo, to insult, to treat with shame or contempt. It's like you're spitting on the name of God. Do you realize that? By the way you live your life in disobedience to him? You see, these people have a superficial understanding of the law. Ultimately, truly, they are blind. They're insensitive to the real spirit of the law and to how wretched their sinful hearts really are. They keep the letter, but they break the spirit of the law every minute of every day. So Paul is pricking their conscience, and he's doing so with this question. Do you insult God by transgressing his law? In other words, doesn't it bother you that you are spitting on God? With your life? So you ask yourself, how is it that these Jews can boast in that which condemns them. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But the answer, of course, is they have a lack of awareness. All sinners have a lack of awareness. They're not sensitive to the true law of God and what it says about our true condition. And so it was with these so-called Jews. I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is the story of the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> We're going to look at some examples of how insensitive the Jews and all out, outside of Christ can be with regard to God's law. Let's look at verse, starting in verse 25 of chapter 10. <clears throat> And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly, do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor 
So let's stop there for just a moment. Jesus asks a very interesting question right off the, the bat with this lawyer. And this lawyer was one who would have been an expert in the law, who knew the law very well. And Jesus says this, what is written in the law in verse 26? What does it say? That's an objective question. What is the actual meaning of what is there? And then he asked this interesting question right behind it. He says, and what is your reading of it? There's the subjective. What is your understanding of what actually says? Because Jesus knows that this man is disconnected from the truth. So the man says, well, you shall love the Lord, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's a correct answer. That is the great commandment. And the second, which is just like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But then we get this interesting insight in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, right there, we understand that this man, this lawyer, had a wrong understanding of the law. His reading of the law was not the actual meaning of the law because he wants to know who his neighbor is in order that he might satisfy the great commandment. And what he is asking really is, who out of the sea of all humanity should I consider my neighbor that I might love them? And you know what the answer to that question was? Those who are just like me, my people. I'm going to love those people because they're my neighbor. And Jesus, through this parable, flips the story on its head. Let's just read how this develops. Verse 30, then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. And a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Do you see how Jesus flips the question on his head? He's not saying who is neighborly to me, but who was neighbor to the others? This man, this, this um, lawyer, he thought that his neighbor was someone like himself. And so he wanted to narrow the circle. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The question is not who is neighborly to you, but what kind of person ought you to be the true neighbor to others, especially those who are not like you, to those even who are your enemy? Are you willing to love them? Are you willing to give sacrificially to them as this Samaritan who is despised in the eyes of the Jews, who gave of his wine and oil, which were costly items, who set the man on his own donkey so that the man had to walk and not ride his donkey, who took him to the inn and gave two days wages to the, to the innkeeper to take care of this man. I mean, this man put his neighbor first because he was being neighbor to, this, to the man who was wounded. 
So there's a lack of sensitivity to the law. This lawyer exemplifies that. He has an understanding of what scripture says, but it's not really the spirit of what God says when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then turn over to chapter 18 of Luke, just a few pages. And this is the account, well, there's two accounts here, of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, starting in verse 11. Actually, starting in verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with him. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisee does not see himself as a breaker of God's law. He lacks sensitivity to the law. He's comparing himself not to the perfect standard of God's righteousness, but on the horizontal plane to other men. And so he points to the tax collector and he says, I thank God that I'm not like other men or even this guy. And then what does he do? He points to his own works. The other man instead won't even look up to heaven. He is ashamed because he knows he's a sinner. And he says, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. He knew that he was guilty and couldn't keep the law in any way. What a different perspective, a different understanding from this Pharisee who felt like he could keep the law. A lack of sensitivity to the law. And then just look over to verse 18 of the same chapter. This is the account of the rich young ruler. Luke 18, 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Stop there. What? Is that true? The scripture teaches that sinners are those who have an open throat of death. All that comes out of them is like an open grave, constantly. They are fountains of bitter water that spew forth nothing but bitter water. They practice deceit. So how can this man think that he keeps the law in any sense? The output of his life is, from God's perspective, only sin continually. That's what God sees when he looks on the heart of a sinner. But the rich young ruler, he was out of touch with reality, wasn't he? He had a lack of sensitivity toward God's law. And the clue is that right off the bat, he uses the word good at the outset. He says, good teacher, when addressing Jesus. And Jesus says, 
why are you using that word? There is no one good but one, and that's God. Good is not a matter of degrees. There is only one good, and it's the standard of perfection. And so it belongs to one alone, and that is the Lord. But that just tells you this rich young ruler saw himself as good. He didn't see himself as sinful and wicked. Hmm. So Jesus puts his finger on the issue and he says, you have got an idol. And the idol is your possessions. Look at verse 22. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. You see, he was unwilling to trade his idol of his earthly possessions for the eternal treasures, the eternal possession of God. He had an encounter with the Lord of glory, and he missed it. I mean, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. And we sit here and we read this and we say, how could you miss this? But the truth is that you would have missed it too. And so would I, because of the blindness of our sinful hearts. He lacked a sensitivity to God's law. Or think about Paul before he was converted, when he recounts his life as a Pharisee. In Philippians chapter 3, remember he says, he kind of recites a long list of all his credentials. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he says this interesting thing. Concerning the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Well, how is that possible, Paul? You really saw yourself as blameless? Well, he did. Because he didn't have the sensitivity to the law, to the spirit of the law. God had not opened his eyes. And we, we understand that because when we turn to Romans chapter 7 and we read, he says this very interesting thing in Romans 7, 9. He says, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul, what do you mean that you that the commandment came? You were trained in the law. You heard the law constantly. You memorized the law. You knew the law. You're an expert in the law. Paul says, I was doing fine. I was alive. And then the commandment came, which is the spirit of the law, behind the letter of the law. The true meaning of the law came to me, and I understood it. And what did it do? It slew me. God turned on the lights for Paul. This is what he does for all of us, brothers and sisters. He gives us um, an understanding of his holiness and our sinfulness. And it crushes us. And Paul says, and the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. That shows you that he was seeking his righteousness in the law, doesn't it? He thought that the law could bring life. The law was never intended to bring life. The law was intended to be a mirror that would show and amplify our own sinfulness, that we would be brought to despair and drive us like a schoolmaster, Paul says in Galatians 3, to Christ. That's the purpose of the law. And then Paul says, it killed me. I, I didn't know coveting until the law said don't covet, and it came to him in a way that impacted his heart deeply. 
And then Paul vindicates God. He says, therefore, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. The problem is not the law. The problem is me. It's my sin. I can't keep the law. The law only stirs up my own sinful passions within me. So there's a disconnect until God opens our eyes. And then listen to Paul's response. And this is our response too. When we become sensitive to the law, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, right? We cry out for God to deliver us because we see how utterly stained with sin we are, polluted. And we cry out for the Lord to wash us and save us. But again, there is a disconnect with reality until the Lord opens the eyes of a sinner. They live in delusion. They live in blindness. And what is the reality? Well, back to Romans chapter 2. It is this, verse 24. Here's the reality. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. The reality is that God's name is blasphemed by the nations of the world. That's what Gentile means. It means nations. By all those who call themselves Jews and who were not true Jews, by all those who call themselves Christians and who are not true Christians, who break the law constantly and yet boast in their ability to be good people, satisfy God in some way. For the name of God is blasphemed. What, what is blasphemy? Well, notice how verse 24 starts. It starts with the connecting word for. And for connects us with verse 23. So, we know that blasphemy is a dishonoring of God from verse 23. That's what it is. To blaspheme God is to dishonor God. But scripture has a lot more to say about this, particularly about the name of God and how it is to be used by men. And there's two ways that we are directed in scripture on how we are to use the name of the Lord. The first is put in the negative, and it's this. Don't take God's name in vain. Don't take it in vain. This is the Ten Commandments. Commandment number three found in Exodus chapter 20, verse seven. The Lord says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does that mean? To take God's name in vain. Well, the Hebrew word for vain is the word shav, and it means literally nothingness or emptiness. But figuratively, it has this meaning, that which is false, that which is deceitful, that which is lying or worthless. And so the idea is this, don't take, and take is in the sense of take up, to lift up or carry. Don't take up or carry the name of God in any kind of false way. The name of God. We could do... Um, many sermons, <laughs> lifetimes, on the name of God and what is meant by the name of God. But suffice it to say for now, it is this. It encompasses all of who God is. It is his attributes. It is his glory. When he talks about his name, it is representative of himself in every way. And so this is the heart of blasphemy. Don't misuse the name of God. His name is holy, thrice holy. And it must never be used in a worthless way. 
And God was so serious about this that he prescribed the death penalty, didn't he, for blasphemy? Listen to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus 24. There's an account of one who misused the name of God, starting in verse 10. Leviticus 24.10. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each, each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody so that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Pretty clear. God prescribes the death penalty for those who blaspheme his name. Um, in this case, one who uses God's name as a cuss word, as a cursing or a swear word. God's name is holy. His name is sanctified. It's separate from all that is common or profane or unholy. That all means the same thing. It's elevated above everything else. And so using God's name in a way where we are cussing with his name or uh, shouting epithets using the name of the Lord is to effectively drag his name through the mud, is to spit on the name of God. Think of when, um, actually, I'd like to invite you to turn to 2 Samuel. We're going to be turning to a few places this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is the account when David and his company are bringing the ark back to Jerusalem after it was taken captive by the Philistines. Um, and I just want to read the first seven verses here. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir woods, <clears throat> fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. What is happening in this account? Well, we understand first that the ark is the place where God places his name. 
He is said to dwell between the cherubim. The ark was a box. It had two cherubim, angelic beings that were facing each other, covering each other with wings. And God's very presence was said to be between the cherubim on this ark. And we're told that there were very specific instructions for how the ark was to be handled, how it was to be carried. How was that? It was to be carried with poles. The box itself was not to be handled, but the Levites, and specifically the sons of Kohath, the Kohathites, they were to bear up the ark on poles so that they weren't touching the ark. What's happening here is a departure from the instruction of the Lord. Um, what happened immediately prior to this is the Philistines had taken the ark of the Lord and they put the ark of God on a cart. And finally, after much trouble brought to the Philistines, after God brings much trouble to the Philistines, they returned the ark to um, the people of God. And so we're told at the beginning of this account that the ark is placed on a new cart. Now there's problem number one. The ark should never have been placed on a cart. It should have been carried by the poles. And what happens is the oxen that are driving the cart as they're coming down from this hill, they begin to stumble and the ark begins to fall. And a man named Uzzah puts out his hand to prevent the ark from touching the ground. Because Uzzah had an idea. He thought that that was a good idea to prevent the ark from being desecrated, from touching the earth. And God strikes him dead. Why? Well, God is serious about how he is to be worshipped and obeyed. If he says that the ark is to be carried, it's to be carried. And it would have been better for the ark to hit the dirt of the earth than for the unclean hand of a sinner to touch the ark of God. And so God wanted to teach the people, you can't come to God any way you want. You have to follow God's instructions for how to approach the Lord. He's showing that he is holy. No man can approach God without proper preparation. Why? The honor of God is at stake. The honor of God is at stake. That's what we're talking about this morning. In other words, don't take up the holy name of God just as Uzzah tried to take up the ark in a wrong way. Don't take up the holy name of God with anything that is unclean. Don't pair his holy name with an irreverent word, like a cuss word. Don't pair his holy name with an irreverent life. So the first way we are instructed to handle God's name is don't take it in vain. Don't misuse it. The second way is the positive, which is this. God's name must be hallowed. God's name must be hallowed. And Jesus, our Lord, reinforced this principle, didn't he? In the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, he said, pray like this, Our Father, who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is a word that we don't use very much, but it's the word ayazo, which means to sanctify, to set apart, to consecrate or separate from all that is unholy, all that is common. God's name must be separated from the unholy. See, God's name is holy. It is hallowed. And his call is that all who take his name must also hallow it. They must not misuse it. We must approach the name of God with great reverence, fear, and respect. 
So when we think about the letter of the law versus the spirit, what's the letter of the law here? Well, don't blaspheme with your mouth. Don't let the name of God leave your lips in a way that is inappropriate ever. That's the principle from Leviticus 24 that we learned, right? Israel was stoned when they misused the name of God. Um, you remember the great I am statements that Jesus made in the Gospels. In John chapter 8, when he said, most assuredly, I say to you, speaking to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. What did they do? They took up stones to throw at him. And why? Well, because they said that he, being a man, makes himself God. They thought he was misusing the name of God by claiming to be God. So they were ready to stone him. They were ready to invoke the principle of God's law against blasphemy. Or think about when Jesus came before Caiaphas, the high priest, and Caiaphas was trying to force him to say whether he was the Christ, the Son of God. And what did Jesus say? He said, it is as you said. And the moment he said that, Caiaphas tore his clothes. Why? Because he thought Jesus was committing blasphemy. He was making himself equal with God. And it would have been blasphemy had he not been God. <laughs> but he was. See, the Jews were very careful, fastidious, not to use the name of God in an irreverent way. In fact, they wouldn't even pronounce the holy name of Yahweh. They only listed four letters next to each other for Yahweh without any vowels in between. So you couldn't pronounce it. And the reason was they were so careful. They didn't want to misuse the name of God on their lips. <clears throat> but the question that we've been asking throughout this section of Romans is really this. Not only what is the letter of the law, but what's the spirit behind the law? Not just don't blaspheme God's name with your lips, but don't blaspheme him with your life, by your actions. Don't take up the name of the Lord in your vessel, that is to say, in your very body, and identify God's name with a vain life, a life that's marked by disobedience, by falsehood, by a practice of disobedience to the truth. Don't do that. That's blasphemy. Turn with me to 2 Samuel um, chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is when um, Nathan comes to King David. And he tells him a parable to prick David's conscience to see that what he's done with Bathsheba in taking her for his wife and killing Uriah was abominable in the sight of God. And when David confronts, excuse me, Nathan confronts David about his sin, David confessed and Nathan told him that God had dealt with his sin, that he put it away from him, that David wouldn't die. But then Nathan says this in verse 14 of chapter 12. He says, therefore, because or however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. See, David had committed a great sin or many great sins. He committed murder with by Uriah by putting him on the front lines of battle so that he would be killed, so that he could take Bathsheba for his wife. That's adultery, an illicit, unlawful relationship with another man's wife. 
But God had chosen David as a vessel of mercy. And so God, in his grace, gives grace to David. He says, I'm going to spare your life. Your sin is put away from you. But the life of the child will die. Why? Because this would be great cause for the enemies of God to blaspheme the name of God, wouldn't it? Look, God is partial to David. David's a favorite of his. He's not going to judge him for his unrighteousness. God just winks at David's sin. And so they would accuse God of injustice. And so for the sake of God's great name, he brought judgment by killing Bathsheba's son. For the same reason that he killed Uzzah. That the world would know that he is holy. That he cannot be approached without proper preparation. And that there are real consequences for sinning against him. And David was not the only one who gave God's enemies cause to blaspheme, right? The Jews as a nation, the whole nation, gave great occasion for God's enemies to blaspheme. This text that we are looking at this morning in Romans chapter 2, verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written, is a reference back to Isaiah. Back to Isaiah chapter 52, in fact, verse 5, where the Lord says through the prophet this, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Let's turn to Isaiah 52. My name is blasphemed continually every day. The context here, it's important to understand, is Isaiah is prophesying during the period of the Assyrian captivity of Israel. This is in the 8th century B.C. But he is prophesying looking forward to the future captivity that is yet to happen for Judah, the southern kingdom, where Babylon will come and take them captive. And then he even looks beyond that to their ultimate restoration to the land. But here in verse 5, he says, God's people are taken captive and they are oppressed. They are in this condition. And in this condition, God's name is blasphemed continually every day. Why? Because God's people have been judged by God. They've been scattered out of their own land. They're not in their own land anymore. And so the surrounding nations would be able to say, well, who is Israel's God? That he should allow this, that, that God's people should be scattered out of his own land. God must be weak. Their God must be weak. And so they blaspheme him. You see how it goes. The commentator Hendrickson said of this passage, Isaiah 52, this, the Old Testament passage, referring to Isaiah 52, 5, takes into consideration the assumption on the part of the Gentiles that when a nation is conquered and deported, its God has also been conquered. So the conquered nation is blasphemed along with its God, end quote. See, the Gentiles would have reasoned like this. The people reflect their God. If the people are wicked, their God must also be wicked or powerless to prevent their wickedness or loveless to allow them to commit oppressions against themselves and the land. And that's the reason why they were judged or unfaithful that he should abandon them ultimately and send them out of their own land. That's blaspheming. That's all blasphemy against God. So the key is this. The people reflect their God. Those who call themselves the people of God, I'm speaking to all of us this morning. 
but who live lives that are wicked in practice, they cast shame on their God. They blaspheme him. Brothers and sisters, the honor of God is at stake. That's why we're self-examining. That's why this is important. But thank God, <laughs> this condition of God's name being desecrated and blasphemed doesn't just continue in perpetuity. It does not. It's not the end of the story. God will not allow his name to be desecrated forever. He will vindicate his great name. This morning when we read Psalm 74, listen to verses 22 and 23 again. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. He says, God, don't you see what they're doing? They're desecrating your name constantly. Please, for your sake, do something about it. And then he appeals to God to remember his covenant. He says, remember your covenant. Remember your congregation whom you purchased from of old. From before the earth was even formed. The eternal covenant of God. God will vindicate his great name. Look at verse 5 again of Isaiah 52. Now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail or mock them, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. Hmm. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. Do you know what God's remedy is for the blasphemy against his own name? It's this in verse six. He will make his name known to his people. He will reveal his name savingly. He will save his people. He will redeem them. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 52. <clears throat> The Lord has made bare his holy arm. Anytime you read about the arm of the Lord in scripture, it refers to the power of God, his power. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. How will God show his power to the nations? He's going to show them his salvation. And here's a picture of it in verse 11. Look what he says. Depart. Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now, the immediate context, again, he's prophesying to um, the, the Jews who are in captivity in Babylon, looking forward, and he's saying, leave Babylon. Don't take anything that Babylon can offer you. Leave all of it behind and go out from her and be clean. But ultimately, this is a picture of salvation in the Messiah. Go out from the bondage of your sin and be clean, you who take up the vessels of the Lord. It's you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Who's that? That's you yourself. Not just those who bear pots that have been consecrated for the Lord. The vessel he's talking about is yourself. Be clean and bear your vessel in a way that honors God. 
we have to remember we are made in the image of God. The intent of God is that we be holy as he is holy, that we reflect his glory in the earth. And if we are blaspheming him with our lives, he says, stop, be clean, leave your idols, leave the adultery, leave the lying, leave the theft, come out and be washed. And then look at verse 12. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, this gives us a really good insight that this is not describing just another exodus like Egypt. The exodus in Egypt was such that the Israelites had to eat the Passover meal in haste, right? Quickly. Why? Because they were going to flee and they were going to be pursued by their enemies. And God says, this exodus I'm describing is one where the Lord himself will go before you and he will follow up behind you as your rear guard. He will hem you in. Don't worry about any enemies pursuing you with this exodus because God himself is your deliverer. God's remedy for blasphemy is that he will reveal his name savingly to his people. You know uh, another way that the Bible describes that? Theologically, it's this term. It's called the new covenant. The new covenant. Turn with me one more place. Ezekiel chapter 36. We've been here before, but there, this is a mine that we will never exhaust. Ezekiel 36. Starting in verse 16. As we read, keep in mind, what is God's remedy for blaspheming his name? Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Do you remember in Isaiah when Isaiah says the righteousness of man is like a filthy rag? That's a reference that's linked here to the cloth of a woman in her time of uncleanness. And he says, when I look at you defiling the land, it's just like seeing the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. There's nothing wrong with the unclean period of a woman. This is a reference, however, to blood because look what he says in 18 he says therefore i poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for the idols with with which they defiled it he's talking here about spiritual adultery and sin he's saying you have polluted the land and it disgusted god and so what did he do in verse 19 so i scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. Now, you've got to follow the pronouns here in verse 20. This is important. When they came to the nations, who's they? They is Israel. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name, Israel. 
When they said of them, now that's where it gets confusing. For the nation said of Israel, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. You see, they're profaning God. They're blaspheming him. And Israel is to blame. They're giving great occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. Now we get to the motivation and the heart of God in verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Loved ones, God's first concern in the salvation of sinners is not you and me. It is first and foremost his own glory. It is his own name. It's the honor of his name. I had concern for my holy name. Verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, or the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. You see, there's the same thing as Isaiah 52. God is going to make himself known how when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. That's the key. God is going to hallow himself in his people before the eyes of the watching world. That's the solution for blasphemy. In other words, he is going to transform those who previously were blasphemers and those who gave cause for others to blaspheme into those who have a heart for God and who obey him as their practice in life. And that in itself will turn away the blasphemy against God's great holy name. Salvation is not primarily about us, loved ones. We are beneficiaries, and God loves his people. I want to be clear about that. But in terms of priority, God loves his holiness more than all. He elevates his name above the heavens. So how does God hallow himself and his people before the eyes of the watching world? Well, verses 25 through 38 really um, elaborate all of that. I'm not going to read that this morning, but I am going to point out some of the um, ways that he hallows himself and his people. And here's, here's the list. He cleanses us with water to wash us from our sin. He does a heart surgery on us to give us new life and new affections for him. He gives us his very Holy Spirit, which is the power to obey him. He gives us rest in the land of plenty, which was a physical land for Israel for a time. But ultimately, it points to the spiritual land of salvation in Christ alone. The rest, the true Sabbath. It is a place where there is no famine, but only fruitfulness. No more reproach from our enemies or blasphemy against God because our lives now follow a pattern of holiness. He gifts us with repentance so that we see our evil ways, we hate them, and we repent of them. We turn from them constantly. And he has an open ear at the throne of grace to the prayers of the righteous, who are those who constantly lay down their lives sacrificially for God. That's all laid out in those verses 25 through 38. I would commend it to your study. Again, why does he do all this? For his great name and that the nations would know that he is the Lord. That's his purpose. 
He is making his glory known. So the remedy to blasphemy against God is the same. He is revealing his name, which is to say he's revealing his very nature to us by recreating us, by causing us to be born again. He is saving us. The unregenerate, those who don't know God, but who may call themselves the sons of God or children of God or Jews, they live in a constant state of blasphemy against God. This is just what I want to leave with you this morning. They constantly live in a state of blasphemy. So the only way to change that is to make them new creatures in Christ, to change their very hearts from the inside. Well, what about us? What about the regenerate, the people of God, the true people of God? We don't live in that state of blasphemy anymore. That doesn't mean that we don't fall into blasphemy at times. We do, just like all the other sins. We commit them regularly, not as a practice, but we fall into them. And as we do, we confess them. God helps us to see our sins so that we would cry out. We're broken. We're slain, like Paul said. And we say, oh, wretched man, help me, God. And he forgives us, and he does. But this whole uh, charge against those who blaspheme his name, you see it time and time again in the scripture. And and even for the, the elect, I mean, think about Moses. Was that not God's charge against Moses when he struck the rock twice in the wilderness rather than doing as God commanded, which was simply to speak to the rock? Moses was angry and in the moment... God says, you didn't hallow my name before the people. I wasn't hallowed before them. Or David, giving great occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme because of his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. These are saved, elect people who still have fallen into the sin of blasphemy. But they repent. And brothers and sisters, we too will repent There is only one, only one who has never blasphemed. He wasn't born in a state of blasphemy, and he never fell into the sin of blasphemy. And his name is Jesus. That's why we put our trust in him. He is the sinless Savior. And if you don't know him this morning, I urge you, put your trust in him. Look to Christ and you will be saved. That's the promise of God in Scripture. Breaking the law dishonors God. It dishonors God because the law is the embodiment of the very righteousness of God. It's what he expects of us and how we are to live in this world. It's the standard of his own righteousness. And as as image bearers of God, that's what he expects us to do. The honor of God is at stake. Brothers and sisters, does it bother you when God is dishonored by your sin? See, that's the question that Paul put to his hearer at the beginning. When you disobey God, you dishonor him through breaking his law. The implicit question is, does that bother you? For Christians, it should and it must. But for those who live in a constant state of blasphemy, it won't bother them until God breaks them, until God shows them their need for a savior. Hmm. Loved ones, we want to honor God in our lives. We want to honor God in this church. We want to honor God in our families. 
We want to honor God in this world. We want the fame of the Lord, his great name, to be hallowed and to be proclaimed and to be loved and obeyed by lives of obedience, don't we? Starting with our own. That's what the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Not blaspheme your God, but glorify your Father in heaven. How does that happen? By true light shining, by good works going forth from us, which are the very works of God that he works through us. I want to leave you with 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Peter says this, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from, less, uh, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's it. We are to shine as lights in the world. We will be maligned, falsely. Huh. We also will be reproached from time to time for our sin. May we confess and repent and turn and be honest with people and with God when we sin. We live in the light. We walk in the light. We don't live in darkness or walk in darkness anymore. And it's how we live our lives that has a direct reflection on our God. We want people to look at us and not see us. We want them to look at us and see a holy God, one who is separate, one whose name is hallowed, one who is great, because he is doing great things in us. Look at your life. Look at where you were years ago, whatever that might be, and look at where you are today. God is at work in his people, loved ones. He doesn't work, although he could, like a whirlwind, like a fire, like an earthquake when he talked to Elijah. But he, he works how? In that still small voice, which is the voice of his very word. And his word, though a small voice, is immensely powerful. It is the word which can change a soul and bring life out of death, which convicts us of our sin and which drives us to our Savior to glory in him. God is at work, loved ones, maybe quietly, but one by one, he is converting sinners and he is creating for himself a nation, a holy nation throughout this world from every tribe, every tongue, every language who will sing the praises of God, who know the salvation of the Lord and who look forward to the day when we will finally be saved and given new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness alone will dwell. Praise the Lord. He is at work. May we never give reason or cause for reproach on the name of Christ by the way we live. God, help us all to live in a way that brings you honor. And when we sin, help us to confess quickly for your glory's sake. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Father, these are difficult passages that are probing, um, searching, and Lord, we acknowledge that we are sinners. We acknowledge, Lord, that we commit these sins of blasphemy. Lord, and yet we see it now and we hate it because you have 
opened the light of your word, your law, and you have exposed how utterly holy you are and how utterly depraved we are in our sinfulness, in our flesh. Lord, we are those who would be consumed if it wasn't for your mercy. Thank you for your great mercy and grace to your people. And that, Lord, the reason you are long-suffering and patient as this world continues in sin and every manner of atrocity that we don't even want to speak of, that, Lord, you have a purpose in your long-suffering, which is the gathering of your elect. You are gathering from the four corners of this earth a people for yourself that we should sing forth your praises, that we should bring glory to our God. May you receive the honor that you are due. May Christ receive the reward that he is due, the nations of the world, his inheritance. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, for conviction by your spirit, and for each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, in whom you are working, you are changing to be more like your son. Make it so, Lord, for your name's sake we pray. Amen.